So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the words you've given us, the revelation that we can understand what is expected of us as churches and also what is what awaits us. Uh, we know this is not our, our, our permanent home and we know that uh, we're all going to a better place. The, the new kingdom will be established at some point and we uh, eagerly await that happening and uh, we're just here to listen to your word and, and learn from you how to be a, uh, a Christian church. And it's all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today I was going to go through the entire chapters, chapters 2 and 3, which is all seven churches um, that the letters are addressed to. But since we're doing this from home, I'll make it a little shorter. We're only going to cover three churches today. So we're going to cover the church at Ephesus. So that's the first part of chapter 2, the letter to Smyrna. So the first half of chapter 2 we're going to cover. And then also we're going to jump over to Philadelphia because Smyrna and Philadelphia are similar in their situations and the letters to them. So it made sense to combine them. And we'll see why in a few minutes with how we, with the um, instructions from Jesus. So this is all about instruction. So the, the two instructions, if you're taking notes, and I'll post this again. But the first one's going to be that Jesus instructs us to love him. And the next one's going to be that Jesus instructs us to be faithful to him. And so this has been quite a week. I titled this whole series, Things to Watch. And we have witnessed history this, this week already with the, the Capitol building incident and everything else. And so we are watching all these things happen. And so we don't know what to do sometimes, or we're not sure how to deal with this th these things. And so we're also... Um, going through this COVID, this all this isolation, the, the the different things we have, and so one of those things with us is we're watching, unfortunately, businesses uh, be be struggling. They're struggling, or they're they're closing down. They're being forced to close because they have no money coming in, and so nobody likes to see that. And unfortunately, this COVID situation, right? This is things that are probably would have happened, or maybe not have happened at all. People would not have closed. We're watching these things happen and close down. But even in the best of times. Right, stores, restaurants, churches, even they close down all the time. And so there's been different shows uh, with famous chefs or hotel owners that uh, they come in, they evaluate the business, they develop a plan to get the business back back up and running. And, and so sometimes it's very bombastic. You know, Gordon Ramsay, he gets in your face, he yells, uh, then he kind of sh shifts gears to getting everything working. And so he has a different, a few different series. And so imagine having Gordon Ramsay come into your house and yell at you or into your restaurant, coming in and, and saying, you, your house is a mess, this is terrible, This you need to do this, clean this better, all these things, all the things that go along. And some of it's probably scripted or dramatized or maybe overblown for TV's sake, uh, you know, some of the antics that go on. But these restaurants are really struggling and they don't know what to do, so they turn to these people to get expert help. And so that's what these two chapters, the chapters two and three, they're really Jesus coming down and he's evaluating these seven churches that the letter, these, each of these are, are letters written to these churches and he's evaluated these churches and he is giving them hints, tidbits, information. He's giving them clues and, and instructions on how to be a Christian church, how to get back on track if they need it, how to encourage them on what they're doing well. 
And so he's coming in and acting this way that we see on TV for these shows, and he's saying, this is what needs to be done. Now, a few years ago, we went through this as part of our revitalization effort. We went through a little more in-depth with these seven churches, and we went through each of them a, little, a lot more in-depth. So this is a little bit quicker in a way, but we're not just passing over it because we've already been there and done that. But it's it's really what is looking at it for now and what instructions he is giving to us. And so we're going to go ahead and read Revelation chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to put it on the screen. Hopefully you guys can see it. And then we're going to go ahead and look at the first couple of churches of what the instructions are. And we'll do the last, the next four churches the next week. And I've combined them into two other points. But let's go ahead and flip the screen. And so here it is. If you can see it, if not, follow along in your Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? So this is Jesus giving instructions to John to tell to the angel. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles that are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my, my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do not have this. You hate the practices, or you do have this, excuse me. You hate, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, also, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Right? And so here's the main point, the main idea for this. This, this is kind of for both, both sets, because again, this was, this was going to be one whole sermon, but I shortened it up. So we'll probably see this again next week. But Jesus leaves us clear instructions on how the church, so the big C, and all the little C's, all the, all the individual churches... How the churches can be successful by his standards. Because we are his church, so we have to live up to his standards and not what the world thinks we should be. And I do think that this is some of the problem with the churches today is we are so concerned with what the world says about our churches that we forget what Jesus says about the churches. So we need to get back to that. And I'm sure there's lots of faithful churches that are doing this and Figuring this out every day, every week. But we need to make sure as our church, Red Oaks Baptist Church, we are doing this and looking at it and using these as guides and what he says. So the first one, this letter, the first letter here that what we just read was the letter to the church at Ephesus. And so Jesus instructs us to love him. He, he wants him to, he wants the church to love them. And so we're going to cover this in a second. I'm going to flip the camera. And so he's giving this, Jesus is giving this message to the seven churches. The seven messages, they're all little individual letters here. In each letter, he's giving this introduction of who he is. In each introduction part he gives is sort of specific to the church or what they need to see and what they need to hear about who Jesus is. Now what this introduction does in each of the letters is verify who Jesus really is. This is coming from the boss, essentially. This isn't just some guy, now he writes it in, so 
He is the one who holds the seven stars in the right hand. And we saw this explained in the end of chapter 1, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which represents the seven churches. So he is walking among the churches. He is in here. He's not just some person who's saying, oh, I heard this bad news. No, he's walking among them. He's knowing and seeing what's going on because he's omnipotent and omniscient. Because Jesus is now glorified back to, you know, his glorified body back in heaven. And so these things, these letters are indeed from Jesus. And so Jesus gives Ephesus a good report in verse 2 and 3. The church is faithful to teaching and doctrine and identifying false teachers. They're making sure that who gets in the pulpit or who is in the classroom essentially is teaching the right doctrine of Christ to help orient the people and help them get right with God and live their lives appropriately not just because we're following rules, but because we are now compelled by love to live out our Christian life. And this is exactly in line with what Paul talks about when he writes to the Ephesians and even the Colossians, but more so the Ephesians and with Timothy in Ephesus later. He's writing this and he's correcting these problems that happened to come when these false teachers were coming in. They started teaching whatever. They said, oh, you know what you're talking about. Go ahead and, and take the pulpit. And they started teaching the wrong things. So this report card or evaluation from Jesus as he offers it is, is like the churches and the leaders over the few decades that this possibly takes place from Paul's letter in you know roughly 60 or so AD to, to if this was written in 90, 95 AD. So you have roughly 30 years, so a, a couple of generations of leaders and churches or church people. They took this stuff to heart and they wanted to make sure that they were producing sound teaching. They were producing and growing good teachers. And my guess is if you were a first century preacher, this was the seminary essentially that you wanted to go to to get trained to become a preacher. You, know, you wanted to get into Ephesus Christian University if, if, they, if they had such a thing to go and train with Timothy and whoever else was there. Because Timothy was the, the bishop at this point or even before this, the Apostle John lived in Ephesus at this point before he went to Patmos. Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived in Ephesus for a time, depending on when this took place. And so you have all these important people of the faith of, of Christianity living in one general location, and then couple that with the fact that this is a crossroads of civilization. Ephesus was a... Was a um, a proconsul area, so it was sort of the capital city of the, the region or the state, if you want to look at it that way. So you have a lot of people coming in and out of this out of this area to hear the gospel, to preach the gospel to people. And so it seems like everything's going well, but then in verse 4 he says, Jesus says, But you have abandoned the love you had at first. Right? You, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, it's not exactly clear what this first love, but it's a good chance the love they left was the love they had for Jesus because they get so consumed with teaching, they get so consumed with possibly being correct and chasing down the false people, they forgot maybe why they were doing it. Why did they get in this business, as you want to call it that, in the first place? They, have a, they had a love for Christ when they became Christians, but now they're sort of just consumed with education, they're consumed with ratting out or, or rooting out the, the, the false teachers. But you see, Jesus basically is saying, you have nothing if you don't have any love for me. 
And so this is what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, you have a, excuse me, he that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. Right? If you don't have love, it doesn't really matter how much doctrinal knowledge you have, how, how right you are about the end times, about this doctrinal thing, you know, systematic theology, God is everything, who is God, all these things. It doesn't matter if you're not coming at it with love. And then you just become you just become a scholar. And there's plenty of Christian scholars who are actually Christians. They're Christianity scholars because they don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and he died for their sins. They just are very good at Greek and Hebrew and whatever else and looking at things and saying, well, this is what it says. And they have no love in their hearts for God, and so they're just teaching. But they're not teaching from a place of love. They're teaching from a place of knowledge. And you need to have both. We need to both have knowledge and we must love the one that we know are learning about. And so this is the most likely answer that Jesus is talking about, that you have left your love for me because Jesus is the entire focus of the Bible. He's the entire focus of this book. It's all about the Lamb of God. He, John makes such a point of putting Jesus for, you know, front and center in this that it's impossible to get around who it is and who's talking. And so if we're not gathering... If we're not gathering on Sunday mornings because of our love for Jesus and really just getting up early and listening to me or somebody else talk about whatever else and morals with no grounding in any substance. And we just become a moral club and that's sometimes what churches have become is they're just there to be right. They're there to because it's tradition. They're there because of whatever. But they've lost their love of, God, of Christ. And we have to make sure as a Christian, individually, we are coming to Jesus every day with love in our hearts for him and for what he's done for us. And we need to be motivated by this love. And so he should be the one that gets us out of bed in the morning. He should be the one. He's our the reason. Our love for Jesus is the reason why we help the school, why we hold kids club, why we are kind to our neighbor, because we want to show the love of Christ, not because we want to get a good name for ourselves as far as, hey, these people really help you out. We're helping you because we love you and we love Jesus. And Jesus says, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. And this is from John. He says, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, right? Never leave my love. Never turn away from my love. That's that last phrase, abide in my love. Stay in his love. Stay connect, constantly connected to this. The Israelites were punished because they lost their first love, God. They lost their first love. God calls them, or he uses the imagery several times in the Old Testament, calling them harlots. Because they went chasing after other gods like Baal, as we saw, if you're with us for the Elijah story, tons and tons of people were worshiping Baal. The leader of the country was worshiping a, a foreign god. They were not following Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Love God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind. They weren't loving God at all. They were just there. They just said, we're Israelites. That should be enough. But they need to do this because what makes them Israelites is not just, it's the covenant, but it's the love that undergirds and holds up that covenant. The love of God 
And their end of the bargain, their end of the covenant is that we love him back. And so if we don't have true love, we're just pretending or it's lip service. And you, like all the other things that come along with being a Christian, right? You just like the, the phrases, the doors, maybe it opens, the things that you can say, the respect you get perhaps as it is by saying I'm a Christian, but you really don't love God. And we need to make sure that as a church, as a whole, as individuals that make up the church, that we are doing things out of love for God. Because perhaps when the tribulation the tribulations, these tough times that we maybe we're getting into, or the tribulation, if we are here for that, the big T tribulation, the great tribulation starts, maybe the church will get smaller because the people who really say they were Christians may, may fall away because maybe they weren't really because they don't have love in their hearts for God. And they say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I guess I really didn't like it as much as, as, as I thought. And so God showed his love by giving up his only begotten son to atone for your sins. Right, John 3, 16. For God loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then God goes on, Jesus goes on to say though that it's also appropriate though for us to hate the things that God hates because God loves but God also hates. God hates the sin. God hates sin. There's things that he isn't like. The sins that we have been saved from, idolatry, adultery, selfishness, sexual immorality, and a host of all other things were paid for in your life if you're saved, if you're elect. But we have to make sure that we stop doing those things. It doesn't give us the pass to continually live that way because we're forgiven. Because if you want to keep doing those things, you may not be saved. And so the thing is, though, that the Holy Spirit comes in and he changes your ideas and your mind about these things that you once did and now they are reprehensible or they should be. And it takes time to move away from that. I understand that's what Paul talks about in Romans with this fleshly struggle. And so as we do this, we need to repent. And so in verse 5 he says, and he's talking to the church here. I want to make sure we understand that. But he's talking to the church, but he says, if you do not repent... I will remove your lampstand. I'm going to pull that up here. Verse 5. If you do not repent, then I will remove your lampstand. If you, I will close this church, is what he's saying to Ephesus. If you do not repent and stop um, only being concerned with doctrine and things like this, that you need to go back to love. If you don't repent of not loving me, he is going to close this church. And I want to make sure that we understand this context because Jesus is talking to the church and not individual. So there's a difference here. Right? There's a difference here. Jesus is never going to tell you this 100%. Like, I'm going to take away your salvation if you don't repent. He's talking to the church. If you are not a good representative of me, if you are not going and working to the, co the covenant this church has signed up for, essentially was established on, then he will close it. Now, these applications can be leveled down to our personal level. They can be applied to our personal level, but the overall context of, of this shutting down the church or removing the lampstand is for the, a church, a, 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 an entity, not a person. I'm going to make sure we're clear on that. that we, oh, the pastor said we can lose our salvation. No, we cannot lose our salvation because your personal salvation is not tied to the church, whatever church you attend. And so this threat of removal of the lampstand, however, illustrates the justice, the providence, and intention 
of God. So neither God or his kingdom, right, listen up, neither God or his kingdom is endangered by the removal of a church. Even one, as this author says here, even one as successful and strategic as Ephesus. You might say, oh, he would never get rid of that church. It's a huge mega church. It's in the right city. They're reaching all kinds of people. Look at all the good work they're doing. Well, if they're not doing the good work for the good reasons, the right reasons, then he can close them down. Improper motivation, as this commentator goes on to say, improper motivation for noble work can only precipitate judgment. And so we, as we are growing our church here, as you're in other churches perhaps, we need to make sure that we are doing things for the love. And so why is this important? Because God controls his churches and he evaluates them. Churches close all the time for numerous reasons. Numerous reasons, but some of them because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. We're seeing upheavals all the time with different churches, famous mega churches with all kinds of leadership problems, all the way down to small churches that are trying to do it right. God will control and evaluate these churches, and He uses them and furthers His kingdom. But there will be a day when things come and things get people get judged. And so the what we're doing, right? So Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, Indiana Jones is looking for the Holy Grail, and so he is fighting this this group of guys that eventually they're a brotherhood that is sworn to protect the Grail's location. There's a big battle on boats and things like that. After they, the fight kind of uh, closes out or concludes, they start talking, Indiana Jones and the, and the main brotherhood guy. He's a minor character, but it, so they start talking about each other. He says, the, the man from the brotherhood asked Dr. Jones, he says, are you searching for the Grail for his glory, meaning God's glory, or your glory, right? Are you, are you coming to church? Are you saying you're a Christian for God's glory because you are saved? Or are you doing it for your glory to, to get some kind of bonus points or something like that, maybe whatever you think it is? And so the same thing happens to the church. What are we doing and why are we doing it? Because that's the most important thing. Whatever we're doing, we, we give Thanksgiving meals, we give Christmas presents, we want to get a food bank started for our church locally. Whatever we do, it needs to be for His glory so that people see Jesus and would know Jesus and come. We can have those conversations with people and see the love that we have for Him. And subsequently, because of that love, we love them as well. Or do we do it because we love ourselves and we want people to be in love with us? Right, And so that's something you, every, each of us has to answer individually, but also we do need to answer this question as a church. And so he concludes with the letter to Ephesus, and we're going to talk about this a little more, but let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says. Right, It just goes back to that Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Listen. Listen. And so the next thing is, is the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Philadelphia. So the letter to Smyrna is the next part of chapter 2. The letter to Philadelphia is over in chapter 3, but these are the both the smallest churches. And so these, this is what Jesus is doing to these two churches, is he's instructing them to trust him. Right? He, Jesus is instructing the churches to trust him. So Smyrna is chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and I'll read those in a minute. And then Philadelphia is talked about in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. So let me read... Verses 8 through 10 for Smyrna. And then we'll go 
We'll go through the rest of it. Write to the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last. The one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and you will be given the crown of life. And so those are the words he says, and he tells Philadelphia something very similar to this. And so these are the two churches that don't get any admonishment. They are not doing anything wrong, at least according to what Jesus says and what he's using as some kind of rubric. They're also thought to be the smallest churches in the whole grouping. So they didn't have a lot. So Jesus tells Smyrna that he knows they have little resources. Basically that they're poor or poverty. I know your affliction and poverty. And he tells Philadelphia, the church of Philadelphia has but little power. And so both of these things, if you're looking at small churches, like there's most churches that are the normative sized churches, somewhere around less than 70 people or so. Less, maybe less than 100, kind of depends on what statistics you're looking at. I once think, I saw a thing the other week that said the number of tr- pastors in the church like that, the churches that, that run that, would not fill up a, a good-sized stadium. There's so many there's so many churches out there that have very few people that, that you, people want to see the mega churches, things like that, that have 10,000 people. That's like less than 1% of the churches that exist, in, in, at least in the country. And so it's easy to think as a small church that we don't have enough things, money, power, influence to do anything. And so some of these churches become downtrodden. I think we've kind of, we've gone around. It's easy to say, oh, we're, we're losing our glory. We've lost it. We're, we're doing, we used to be 800 people. Now we're 10, you know, whatever it is. And so it's easy to want to throw in the tower, just do things halfway like, oh yeah, I, I, I'll come to church. I'll do whatever. But Jesus is encouraging these churches and he's asking them to trust him because he's like, look, I don't need you to have a million dollars in the bank. I don't need you to do whatever it is you think you want to do. I need you to do whatever it is I'm I'm having you do. Just be faithful. Trust me with what's going on. And so he wants these churches to trust him. They've done so thus far, it seems like, because again, they're not in trouble. Essentially, there's no any kind of admonishment or you've done this bad thing or good thing. Smyrna is apparently getting ready to go through or have some kind of trouble come up. And people are going to be thrown into prison. Satan, he says, Satan's going to get a hold of you and throw throw some people into prison. And again, not probably not a literal prison, but he's they're going to test be tested. And so Philadelphia has also been faithful, patiently enduring anything that was thrown at them because of Jesus. And so, both churches faced issues with people in it who consider themselves Jews, but they obviously were not because these actions that people from the Jewish people, Jesus calls both of them in the church to, to Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were the synagogue of Satan. And so these may be the same people that were going behind Paul trying to convince the Christians to come back to Judaism, things like that. But it says that it seems that there were certain centers, right, different churches or cities, apparently Smyrna, Philadelphia, and perhaps even Thyatira. 
where the persecutions faced by Christians at the hands of both Romans and Jews, so they're getting it from both groups of people, were particularly ominous. So here you are trying to go to church, and yet people are trying to stop you. People are maybe not supporting your business because you're a Christian, so I'm not going to buy from you, which makes, obviously, financial hardship, which makes you question what you're doing with your faith because now I can't feed my family. Things like that, right? So these people in these churches... We're experiencing these problems. I know the slander of those people who say they're Jews, right? So you're being lied about. You're being talked about in town. You know, things spread on in the news or just in the gossip. But as we see that Jesus is offering protection, in a sense, to these churches. But he's also saying, hang in there and keep remaining faithful to me. Like, don't take your eyes off of me. Don't look around, don't go, don't look at somebody else who maybe could give you something else, but look at me, keep keep going and walking towards me. Uh, you know, I talked about it numerous times, right, we need to be cross-focused, we need to be Christ-centered, Christ-focused. And although it may be difficult for humans to appreciate adequately, the scriptures seem to make clear that for every injustice and evil suffered by believers on earth... There is significant reward in heaven. Right? Here's a promise that because of the conditions of poverty and tribulation through which the Smyrna believers are walking, their value in God's eyes was exponentially increasing. Right? Jesus says, I know your affliction and poverty in verse, verse 1, or verse, excuse me, verse 9, but you are rich. Imagine that saying, I don't have any money, but I'm here. Jesus is saying, I'm rich. I'm rich in what? I'm going to get later my rewards in heaven. My, I am rich in faithfulness. I'm rich in love. And I'm doing this for him. And so this may be a foreign concept a little bit to, to, to us here in America. But at the same time, we need to understand that whatever we have has been given to us by God to do the mission that he has called us to. And so I think we do a really good job of making use of our resources, making use of what we're doing and being creative to get out and reach people for Christ. And so they may be considered poor by the world standards, but they're rich according to Jesus, and that's the most important thing. They have eternal life. So these churches are not in existence anymore. They're, uh, they're, they're, there's other cities built over their ruins, or they're, or they're tourist traps, or they're not traps, but they're tourist places to go to see the people who are into the Bible. They want to go see these, these cities, and they're excavating them all the time, looking for different pieces, filling in blanks of historical significance. But we are talking about these churches today, you know, roughly 1,900, almost 2,000 years later. And so the church is a body, the church that's considered the bride of Christ. And those of you who are married know that the groom or the husband should do anything to protect his wife. And as a husband, I'm fallible, I make mistakes. Even though I try to keep my wife's interests in mind and protect her. But I don't always do that. But Jesus is the perfect groom. He's the perfect husband. He is God and he is worthy of our complete trust. Because he is going to lead us through any situations that we find ourselves in. And no matter if we live through the great tribulation. No matter if, if we're just experiencing turmoil here in our own country. right? We see this upheaval last week and some other stuff. That, you know, Who knows what's going to happen next uh, but we need to keep our focus on Jesus, right? This cult of personality that takes place in, a, in, in our country with anybody, with stars, 
you know, politicians, whoever it is, people want to be a part of this this person to try to touch their hem, just like the the lady that touches Jesus's robe. People want to be a part of that. They want to say that yes, I was there, I was here, I have his autograph, I have her autograph, whatever it is. But but we need to be that way for Jesus. We need to stay focused on Him because He's the only one that is worthy of our attention like that. He is worthy of our complete trust again. I'm going to say that again because it's important that we understand that as Christians that no matter what way the wind blows, we know that he is the, should be the one filling our sails. He is the only person worthy of our complete attention. If we love him and abide in him, right, this all flows together, then we can trust him. But the question may be, well, how do we love Jesus how do we love him and trust him? It's easier said than done. Well, here's the answer. Part of it is it's an active process. Just like any marriage, you just didn't jump in and know everything about your spouse. You didn't just have a happy-go-lucky marriage from day one, probably. right? This is an active process. The more you're married, the more you find out you don't know about your spouse and the more you want to know about your spouse, hopefully. right? So it takes... So here it is. Here I got three... Uh, pieces of application for this so the first part is that it takes effort to love him and trust him right you have to be active in getting to know god you have to listen to him by reading and studying the bible hearing his word explained praying to him and then listening for answers this isn't just you put on something in the background and let it go through. Now, you can kind of do that, but it's but that's more of a subconscious thing. You need to be active in your learning. And this takes effort. You have to set aside time to come to church. You have to set aside time to read the Bible whatever time of day you want to or listen to the Bible if you're more of an auditory learner. That's completely fine. But you need to be thinking about these things. Next, it takes patience to love and trust Him. This is, over, this is not an overnight emotion. These are not just like, oh, yeah, I love them and I trust them, no problem. Now, we should be that way just like children where children love and trust their parents. We should be the same way with God. But at the same time, it's not easy as adults because we have real life going on. Right? We have bills. We have jobs. We have taxes. We have all these things to take care of. And so sometimes we need money right now. And so I would really like you to give it to me. I, I need something from you, God. I really like it today because I have to pay something tomorrow. And I don't want to wait for Tuesday. And so this takes time to develop. And again, this kind of goes into the effort of, of being patient. Because we're not going to get everything we want when we want it. We may not ever get the things we really truly like what we want, but he's going to give you things we need. And so while we wait for this patience to develop, it's going to take perseverance as well. We have to have perseverance to love him and trust him. And we have to do this as a unified body. All of these things, as Paul describes, the body has different parts that all work to do the things that we humans have to do. Eat, breathe, work, preach the gospel, teach people, whatever it is. We are doing these things together because... I may be more patient because I've already gotten through one situation and I can help somebody through their similar situation or vice versa, right? I can learn from other people who are there called to teach and preach 
and I can learn, I can teach and preach what I know, I can learn from others who know something else, right? So we all work together as a body to get through this and help develop these things. And we can also encourage each other through this perseverance, to have this perseverance, to say, hey, don't quit, don't give up. And we as a church won't give up. And so Christ has charged these churches with certain actions and responsibilities. We're going to see the rest of it as well. The other four churches, I have two more points to go after that for next week. And so again, if we don't meet these qualifications, if we don't, if we're not doing the mission, if we're not loving God and trusting Him, God can come and close the church and say, you know what? You guys have run the race, you're done. Yeah, that can be a possibility as well. But Jesus gives all these churches, and there's a pattern with the letters, is that to the one who conquers, so after at the closing part of each letter, so it's like usually the last verse before the next transition, it says, like in verse 7, it says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That was chapter 2, verse 7. And so the one who conquers, right, the one who obeys and heeds the corrections and applies it, they will be considered conquerors, victors, overcomers. And so this term for conquering, the Greek word is nikeo. And so the Greek goddess of victory is named Nike, right? And that may seem very similar. You sound very familiar because that's the shoe company. There's also a missile system called Nike, right? Because this, this, overcom this overcomer, this victor or conqueror. Um, but if we want to be considered this, if we want to be called a conqueror, then we must do so on the basis of the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony, right? We have to, we are only going to win because Jesus wins. We are only going to win when we're on that side, if we're on his side. If he has called us to his side, then we are over there and we are fine if we continue to do these things. Now, and who doesn't want to win? Right? But this isn't some earthly prize or reward. These rewards are heavenly, everlasting rewards. We have a place in home. Now, again, this is not a work for salvation kind of deal. The church and the, the people are already saved and sealed. Right, so the church, the big C made up of people, it's already saved and sealed. So for your Bible homework though this week, I want you guys to read these two chapters, chapters two and three, and I want you to pay attention to how Jesus describes himself to each church and see how that fits in with what he's telling the churches. And also look and see what the victors or the conquerors of each one will get. And so... This is why we endure anything the world throws at us. Because Satan wants to throw us off our game. He wants to have as many churches close as possible because that's the way he thinks he's winning. If these churches aren't here, haha, that must mean I'm winning. But we know by the end of this book that we know what happens. So the churches will close when God wants them to close no matter what. But when we do this, the things we need to do for this week are, are continually love and trust Jesus because he is the victor. He's the one that paid for your sins. He beat, he beat death. He already conquered. He has the keys to both death and Hades. He's already unlocked those doors for us. We will have everlasting life. We will be victors. And you see that towards the end of the revelation when it talks about it, that we are also included in this wedding feast. We're also included in the victory 
party, if you want to call it that, because that's what it is. And so as we go out this week, you know, if you're finishing up, you'll listen to some worship music today or all week, really. Read these couple letters, these chapters two and three of these letters of the seven churches, because they are applicable to us as well. Our church, Red Oaks Baptist Church, and other churches as well, because when you're evaluating churches, you can look and see. Are they biblical churches? Because we should always strive to be a biblical church, not a worldly church. So let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we can uh, go on about and read these other letters the rest of the week. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the encouragement to the churches. And please just let us learn, learn from these things, learn from the words of Jesus on how we can be a a more Christ-like church, and we can love and trust you. It's all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And uh, we will see everybody next week.